Hear the Gospel of our Saviour Christ according to St. John, chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 47. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you come to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you'll be with us by your Spirit and that you would speak truth to us from your Word. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. Well, today we celebrate the feast of Michael and all angels, and I've decided to do something that I've not done for many years, and that's to preach a sermon about angels. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind uh, when you hear the word angels. Great, that's come up. If you're of a certain vintage, it might be that huge Robbie Williams hit that is now a staple of karaoke evenings. It might be simply the Christmas story with its tale of angels. Or it might even be Frank Peretti's supernatural thriller, This Present Darkness, that pops into mind when you think of angels. How many have actually read This Present Darkness? I'm the only one. I can't recommend it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> moving on. Um, I'm not going to suggest that, uh, sorry, I am going to suggest that no matter what our theological position may be, many of us, and I hope I'm not out on a limb here, many of us are at the very least tempted by the outlook of this man when it comes to angels. This is the great German biblical scholar Rudolf Bultmann, who once said this. He said, it is impossible to use electric lights and the wireless and to, avail of our, and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. Most of us, I think, are functional demythologizers when it comes to the subject of angels. Our religious worldview, whether we be conservative, liberal, or somewhere in between, actually has little place for angels. We don't often ponder the role that angels play nor do we ask how much relevance they have for the church. Fascinatingly, our lack of interest in angels is a direct contrast to a huge and burgeoning interest within the New Age movement. So uh, my question as we celebrate the Feast of Michael and All Angels is how are we to understand angels as components of our faith? First thing to say is that they populate the pages of scripture. They appear at the beginning of scripture in Genesis at the end of Revelation and take their place in the gospel story about Jesus. They turn up to comfort him in Gethsemane and Jesus believes that he could have called upon a whole legion of them to rescue him from the cross that he had so desired. Our relative lack of interest in angels, again I hope I'm not presuming too much, you guys might all be into angels, I think you reflect on them often, but I would say our relative lack of interest in angels uh, is balanced by the avid interest taken in them by some of the greatest figures in church history. I'm not going to actually talk about Karl Barth, but he, he, he devoted reams of pages to 
angelology in the church dogmatics. Um, and he saw Pope Francis being mythologizing as a sort of blind alley uh, leading nowhere. And perhaps the greatest Catholic theologian of all time, I sort of vary between Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, but for this sermon, the greatest Catholic theologian of all time, Thomas Aquinas, uh, wrote so much about angels that he became known as the angelic doctor. And I've included just a sample of his thought on angels. He writes this. He says, an angel can illumine the thought and mind of man by strengthening the power of vision and by bringing within his reach some truth which the angel himself contemplates. So Aquinas speculated that as, as the uh, angels reflected on the beauty and the courage of God, they could somehow inspire people on earth to see a little bit more of who God is. Another Catholic theologian of sublime intellect, Cardinal John Henry Newman, was to say once, every breath of air and ray of light and heat, every beautiful prospect is, as it were, the skirts of their garments, the waving robes of those whose faces see God. Now, moving away from what has to be said is Roman Catholic speculation, but angels to sober biblical certainty, have these words of John Calvin. He says, the scriptures insist that angels are the ministers and dispensers of the divine bounty towards us. They watch out for our safety, undertake our defense, and direct our path. And finally, uh, the words of Billy Graham, who's written the most popular book on angels, and he wouldn't really go down there as one of the great theological figures of uh, church history, but he said this. He said, few people realize the profound part angelic forces play in human events. So angels are quite significant, both in terms of the space which they take up in the text of scripture and also the amount of attention given to them by some of the major theologians of the church. What can the Bible tell us about them? What does the Bible actually say about angels? Well, the first thing to say uh, about angels, and this is a bit of an anti-climax, is that although uh, there's an abundance of reference to angels, there's no systematic explanation of their natures in the Bible. Anything we can infer is guards from accounts that describe their activity. So given that, what can we say? Well, if one was to create a sort of profile, perhaps the first thing one might say about angels is that they are creative intelligences, brought into being by the creative energy of God. They have the ability to hear, understand, and communicate. And given that their creation predated the, the uh, physical universe, and that they always exist in the presence of God. Some Catholic theologians speculate that they are more intelligent than not even a single human being, but the mass of humanity. Paul's reference to their creation in Colossians 1 indicates that they are that part of creation which is invisible or immaterial. Thus, they don't actually have wings, wear white robes, or for those who remember the ads, eat Philadelphia cheese, do any of those things. According to the biblical, to the Biblical accounts, they are capable of taking a visible form, normally human, but this is for the purposes of the task that they've been allotted. And given their privileged position in heaven and their early place in the creation, certain texts describe them as being in some ways superior to humans. So you've got Psalm 8, verse 5, that saying we are made a little lower than the angels. One of the most striking things about the references to angels is that we are told they contemplate the face of God and worship him. And our own liturgy uh, conveys knowledge of that reality when we say at the communion table, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we praise your glorious name. 
Thomas Aquinas in that earlier quotation suggested that part of that contemplation was taking in the glory and perfection of the divine nature. That's what angels do when they worship. They take in the glory of the divine nature and their worship isn't the product of habit, duress or lack of alternative options. Instead, it's a glorious fulfillment of their own being because they see God as he is without obstacles, hindrances and shortcomings that often distort our vision. They see God as he actually is. Biblical words for angels, uh, Malak in Hebrew and Angelus, or Angelus in Greek, means simply messenger. Thus angels are created intelligences who are present to God and available to carry out his will. You see that in, in operation in well-known passages such as Gabriel's visit to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and lesser-known passages, passages such as the angel help free Peter from prison. And one uh, popular writer, going back to Graham again, refers to them as God's secret agents. And it's certainly the case that, that when angels are on the job in scripture, it's rarely mission impossible. Um, one of the most or more surprising aspects of angelic existence in the Bible is that they are spectators of human existence. They take an active interest in the affairs of men and women. Well, not affairs per se, but you know what I mean. Um, Peter in his first epistle talks of them longing to look into what God has revealed to the prophets about what he would do for the church that he would bring about. You see this in 1 Peter 1, verse 2, where he says, it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you, but they spoke of the things that had not been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long, long to look into these things. So Peter conveys the sense of intellectual or theological curiosity on the part of the angels, as they spectate on the church's affairs. But what is vital to note is that their interest or uh, their involvement uh, is actually done out of love for the human race. So in those uh, three parables about lostness in Luke's gospel, at the end we find that there is rejoicing among the angels of heaven when one sinner repents. So there's a sense in which uh, angels love the human race and want God's goodness to be known among, among men and women. So they're taken up with the mission of the church and they experience joy when they see a sinner return to God. Now that this is the perspective of the angels shouldn't be a surprise given their role in scripture because they're not there to merely watch human existence or, or see the progress of the gospel. They are actively involved in God's ministry in the world. And, and, and their function, according to the Bible, is to come to the aid of the saints. And this statement from the author to the Hebrews is about the most wide-ranging definition of their ministry. He says, are not all angels, no. are not all angels, ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And the same author goes on to say that many have encountered angels unawares. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of the actual point of the sermon, uh, is, is the biblical worldview in which angels play an active part in the lives of believers an archaic hangover which we need to politely jettison or is there a reality that our enlightened mindset has blurred and obscured? And my instinct as a natural skeptic of one who is in constant, in a constant state of repentance for being a skeptic is, is to wonder whether there are any other reasons for believing in the existence of angels other than what we find in the biblical text. 
Like, don't get me wrong, I, I'm not saying that the biblical text isn't enough, but you know, it, it has sort of crossed my mind, you know, are there any realistic accounts of, uh, of angels that work in this world? You know, can we see them sort of doing, doing things for the human race? Um, well, I, I'm going to, before I make a comment on the Revelation passage, I'm going to share a real-life incident involving a philosopher called J.P. Moreland. And Moreland, I think, teaches at Biola University, and uh, he shares this story. And the, the thing to know about Moreland is he, he, he isn't the sort of guy who's obsessed with, with these issues at all. But he said that uh, he was teaching somewhere in the Midwest, and this lady came up at the end, and she told him that she saw three angels standing beside him, one to his left, one to his right, and a very tall one behind. And he said to her, thank you very much, ma'am. And then thought, bless. <laughs> <laughs> and thought, thought nothing, nothing else of it. But ironically, a number of months later, that same professor, as he shared on the YouTube, uh, which I watched, was going through a very sudden and intense emotional trial. And he was wondering where God was right in the midst of it. And so he, he asked God, uh, is that true? Were there really angels surrounding me? And he didn't really expect an answer. And it was a very odd prayer that he normally wouldn't have prayed. And uh, he went back to California, where Biola is. And uh, he was back teaching classes. And at the very end of one of the classes, one of the students came up and, uh, and said to him, I, I'm really nervous at telling you this because pretty sure you'll assume I'm simply nuts. But when you were teaching in this class, I saw three angels standing beside you, one to the left, one to the right, and the right tall one behind here. I've drawn a picture of, of the angels. And, uh, and, and apparently uh, that story, or that event, or the way it panned out, made all the difference for, for Borland in the middle of this really, really difficult experience that he was having. So, are they indeed ministering angels sent to help the heirs of salvation, ministering spirits? Now, before we look briefly at that passage in Revelation involving Michael and the angels, I want to offer a few suggestions for how we might respond to this theme of angels. First off, I think we need to recognize that the world, as the Bible understands it, is actually a lot more enchanted than the world that the science and rationalism has bequeathed to us. It's a lot more enchanted. There's a lot more going on. Um, so, so, so whilst there is no indication or encouragement in Scripture that we are to converse with angels or invoke them or worship them or do anything like that, uh, we are called to recognize that, that God may, may use them to help us. And I remembered a story which one of our former external examiners told me, uh, Adrian Chatfield, his father, <coughs> was a very devout Anglican Catholic priest in East London, and he got word that a gangster was dying and uh, and he knew it was an incredibly dangerous part of, part of these men to travel to and this was very late at night and he prayed for protection and he went off and prayed for the, guy, the gangster minister to him and then came back and, then, and a few days later somebody from the area came over to him and said father chatfield um who were those two big guys with you last night and of course in his memory there was no one there um, so um, there, there are far more of those stories going around than you might imagine. 
We're also to take from this doctrine that, that God is so concerned with what we're facing that he sends ministers of grace to us. Of course, earthly angels, but maybe even heavenly ones. I once had a very, very dark experience and sort of went to bed feeling incredibly um, fearful and saw very little of a way forward. Uh, but when I woke up, I had this sense of being accompanied. I had this sense of being surrounded by peace and grace. And I prayed for about half an hour with that sense of being surrounded, constantly there. And then when I finished praying, uh, I felt different than I got on with the day. But I, I have wondered on occasions whether that, that sense of being surrounded may have been, it may have been angels. I don't know. But please take this doctrine as, as one of great encouragement to the church militant here on earth, that God's angels are on our side. And I want to end with a reference to one more characteristic of an angel, and this trait relates very closely to that passage from Revelation that was read to us. Angels, according to scripture, are warriors. And the seer of Revelation tells us that war broke out in heaven and that Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And as you follow the uh, passage, there's an interesting relationship between the war in heaven and the church's experience on earth. Because we're, we're, we're told that, um, that the accuser of the brethren was hurled down, an action which the text attributes to Michael and his angels. But then he adds these strange words, and he's now referring to believers on earth again. He says, they, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, getting beyond the language of this text, which is very hard to fathom, Calvin thought Revelation was so hard to fathom that he, he chose never to write a commentary on it. But if we try to engage with the language, I, I think that there is a principle being being uh, outlined here, uh, and that is the spiritual warfare, however we define it, is fundamentally determined not by the angels, but by the activity and faith of the church. The church's triumph will not come as the outcome of a heavenly battle. If anything, what happens in the invisible realm will be determined by what happens here and now in our lives. So it's not that the angels are fighting for us and maybe they'll win the victory. As we Trust God, I think what this passage is saying, then, then, then the angels are empowered in their, in their struggle against, uh, against evil. So uh, the image of Michael and his angels can, can give us, as I've said, the impression of the battle that we are only spectators of. The reality, perhaps, is that we are the main players uh, and our faith must rest on that redeeming death and the reality of God's presence with us. That's, that's where our faith must rest. Not in angels or what angels might do, but in what Christ has done for us and his presence with us. May God give us strength to do that. Amen. 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 Amen.